welcome to the Wilder Outdoors podcast, where you'll get the inspiration and information you need to have great outdoor adventures with your family. I'm Rob, your host. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, I chat with my friend Josh Link. Now, Josh is an excellent dad, a great husband, a fantastic outdoorsman. But for the purpose of our conversation, what makes it really interesting is that Josh is also a firefighter. So we talk a lot about his experiences in the outdoors, how he's helping uh, his kids learn to fall in love with the outdoors, but we spend a lot of our time talking about the science of fire and how to make really great campfires. It's one of the most interesting conversations I've had, so you won't want to miss that. Now, before we start, if you could do me a huge favor and subscribe to this podcast, it would help me out a ton. And if you like it, uh, you know, please leave it a good review. And I have to apologize because I accidentally recorded this episode from my end on my AirPods. So the quality of my audio isn't what I would like, but if you bear with it, what Josh has to say is worth its weight in gold. You will get a PhD in how to start and maintain really excellent campfires in the outdoors. So the last thing is that you will hear Josh talk a lot about fire and how to build fires safely in the outdoors um, and how to make them sustainable. So One of the things that I do a lot in my outdoor education with kids and families is help people uh, learn to do this through in-person and virtual classes. So if you'd like to learn how to build a high-quality campfire on your own, whether you're in a survival situation or just going camping, check out our free resource. Uh, You can get it at www.wilderoutdooracademy.com forward slash fire. And in that, you will learn uh, the basics of firecraft how to build a one-match fire, and also how to build an upside-down fire lay. And that's a really great structure for anyone learning to build fires for the first time or who may not be super experienced with building uh, outdoor fires. So with that, let's get this episode started. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, I have with me my friend, Josh. And Josh is a great husband and father, an excellent outdoorsman. But for the purposes of our conversation today, it's really interesting that Josh is a firefighter. So we'll be talking a lot about family in the outdoors, but um, on today's episode, Josh will be sharing about how you can um, build excellent fires in the outdoors, especially when you think about campfires, how you can do it efficiently, effectively, and safely with your kids. So I'm really excited about today's episode. Josh, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So Josh, tell us, um, just a little bit about yourself and your family and your relationship with the outdoors. Yeah, sure. I've, uh, I got, uh, I'm a married man, as you mentioned, got a couple of kids. I have 11 year old twins, a boy and a girl. I grew up out on the West coast in the San Francisco Bay area. And my parents, my mom is from that area, city girl. And my dad grew up in rural Kansas with, barely running water and a very uh, almost poverty level and grew up with a lot of great values and a lot of great uh, things, but not a lot of money. And he spent a lot of time in the outdoors growing up. And I think that's kind of what ended up infusing it so much in me, but I've often thought about it. And I think that as far as outdoors go, I was just born that way, man. (laughs) <laughs> it's deep. It's deep in there. So when you were a kid, what are some of the things you did when you're out in the outdoors? Well, it was, it was like a, in a lot of ways, a frustrating childhood. 
uh, like one of my earliest memories is laying prone in the bushes with whatever I could find that I thought seemed camouflage, but it wasn't real camo gear with a cap gun waiting for songbirds to land in the yard so that I could pretend like I was hunting. And, but my dad, and I've never really talked to him about this, but my dad, I, my analysis about him is he grew up hunting and fishing because that's otherwise there wouldn't be food on the table in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Um, and he had five brothers, four brothers, and they constantly were, um, you know, kind of struggling a little bit here and there to, to put food on the table. And it was like, get something tonight or we may not eat that well. Um, so from a young age, he would tell me all the stuff that he knew about being in the outdoors. But as I got older, I started to realize that maybe like he just didn't, he didn't have the love for it, like the passion for it. To him, it was almost like work. Maybe that's what it was that made him the way he was. So he grew, he moved to town and got a good job and, and really like raised his, his socioeconomic status in life. And then I'm not so sure that he was all that interested. And he always, I could tell he had a great love for mother nature and the beauty, but I think as he got busier and, you know, just raising kids and having a full-time job and all that, I think it got harder and harder for him. Meanwhile, I was hassling him every day, all day to take me fishing, to take me hunting. And in, in the, in the suburbans, San Jose is the town I grew up in Bay area. There's just, I don't know if you guys, uh, out there listening have ever known this, but California is not exactly well known for its hunting culture. And um, while there is actually quite a bit of opportunity there, that tends to be more in the rural areas and in the more urban areas, it's pretty difficult to be a hunter. Uh, a lot easier to be a fisherman, but it's a crowded, crowded playing field out there as a fisherman. So my dad did teach me to fish and we did that a little bit more than occasionally. Uh, but any hunting that I did, I did by the time I was 15, 16, 17 years old is when I started pursuing it on my own. So you started pursuing it on your own. What was that like? Uh, to be frank, it was a, a little bit uh, borderline uh, illegal at times. You know, I mean, we didn't we weren't poachers or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, as 15 year old kids or 16 year old kids that just got our license, we could. Like, for example, we had a, uh, a membership to a archery club that was adjacent to like a military base. Uh, and we would, we're out there shooting archery. We'd notice all the jackrabbits around and no one said you couldn't hunt jackrabbits out there. So we just started hunting jackrabbits out there until the military security came out and said, Hey, quit doing that. <laughs> you know, and, and then we would, uh, you know, Finally, like, you know, some friend of a friend would give us permission to hunt on their property, but we didn't know anything about hunting. So we would just try our best. And it was kind of pre-internet, you know, so we would have to read a lot of books and just glean the information however we could and, and started to, you know, and also not having like a real strong hunting mentorship like uh, a lot of my friends here in Minnesota had growing up, going to deer camp every year. Um, we had, I had a very strong gun safety mentorship. Um, but I don't, my, I've never actually gone hunting with my dad. 
So all the hunting that I did, I just kind of pieced it together. And it wasn't until I got into my late twenties, um, I would go, my dad, I mentioned being from Kansas, I would go out to visit his, our family out there. And those aunts and uncles and cousins were the ones that really kind of mentored me into it to where I was comfortable doing it on my own and competent, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's almost what, 10 years of trying to figure it out on your own. Oh, I mean, I consider it more like 25 years because ever, even as a young boy, I wanted it so bad. It drove me crazy. Um, I would, you know, occasionally manage to shoot a squirrel in the backyard with a pellet gun. And then I would skin it and cook it in the backyard. And my mom would be like freaking out. What are you doing? And my dad would be like, honey, that's just how boys are, you know, and and it was horrible. You know, it was like unseasoned, scorched, looked like a rat, you know. So right. but you um, did it. You brought but it. I did it. I wanted to do it and I wanted it so bad. And we did fish a lot. Um, so we, we brought home some fish. I actually, over the years, I've become more of a catch and release fisherman. But um, yeah, initially brought home a lot of fish. And living on the West Coast, we have the opportunity to go to the ocean as well as those lakes and streams that are around and now josh your kids are older but one of the things i love about you is that you actively mentor and involve your kids in the things that are important to you and so i know you do a lot with your kids in the outdoors tell me a little bit about that yeah i mean it's a that's in, in, when you ask me a question like that in my mind the the amount of things that i want to say right now is too much for this podcast, but, um, on a base level of philosophy of raising kids, I want to raise kids that aren't stuck with their face in a screen. I want to raise kids that are capable and resilient. Um, you know, that they can handle right now, small and medium problems, but soon they'll be able to handle big problems. I want them to have be independent thinkers and then on a selfish, a little bit selfish, but also what's good for them. I want them to instill a love for the outdoors as well. And I, as I mentioned, I have a boy and a girl. My son is like my clone. He likes everything I like. We have very similar personalities. He's a very easy son or easy child to connect with for me. And my daughter and I have a lot of personality similarities, but not as many interest similarities. So I'm always working my best to, to connect with her as much as I can. Um, but both of them like fishing. And uh, an example of a, what I consider to be a really good way to get kids interested in, in this case, fishing. We have a boat and we take it out and we, we go. We, I just try to make it as positive as possible. So I call it fishing. But in reality, it's swimming, eating unlimited snacks, um, farting around doing whatever they want, and then also some fishing. And we just kind of always call it fishing, and I just want them, especially when they were younger, to just view that in a very positive light. Um, I'm not, I don't always get A plus on this, but I really try hard not to like yell at them and be frustrated with them when we go do that, because they inevitably tangle up their lines and 
do something that I already told them 300 times not to do, or, you know, somehow don't meet my expectation of what is how you're supposed to behave in the outdoors, but that's okay. Cause they're just little kids and they're getting it. And if, if I look at them now compared to what they were five years ago, it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say that's, you know, I, I think I can see someone like you and, and want to be like you in that way, or, or I want my family to look like that in that way. But my kids are still, you know, comparatively really young. I mean, my kids are six. One's about to be five next week, and then you know, uh, three. Right. So, if you're thinking about what you did with your kids back then, what did that look like? Uh, it looked pretty similar to what I just described. You know, like I, I, it, it was more discipline for me not being frustrated. I mean, for one thing, I've, I think I read one of your, uh, one of your website posts about you took your kids fishing on the Mississippi and, uh, had a real positive experience. It's like, so an older gentleman advised me about this. He's like, if you go fishing with kids, you better have your expectation be that you're nothing but a guide. Don't go out there hoping that you're going to get in a few casts yourself or that, you know, because when you set that expectation aside, then you set aside about 80 to 90% of your frustration because you're not getting to do what you thought you're going to get to do. Instead, you're just helping kids fish and you draw your success from their success, um, which is also challenging because as an adult male who's an outdoorsman or any other person who's just interested in their own interests, and then you have kids, any of us who are fathers know that all that goes out the window and you don't get to do anything that you like doing anymore, at least not in any quantity that's satisfying and everything becomes about the family and the kids. And if you don't wake up to that fact, your partner will help you wake up to that fact. Um, so it's even more frustrating because like, dang, I haven't been on the water in months. I was telling some guys the other day that when we first, uh, when I first moved to Minnesota, I was so enamored with all the lakes and I didn't have a job yet. And every day I would spend the morning uh, looking for jobs. I would spend an hour or two working out and then I would go fishing. And I fished 68 days um, out of the summer. And I think like the last several years I've fished, like when I say fish, I mean like go out by myself or with a partner and fish hard for the day. Uh, maybe three to four times a summer if I'm lucky. Uh, but I take my kids out uh, three to four times a month. And I, and at this point, because of the work that I put in toward it, what we were discuss, discussing about, you know, putting, getting them competent in the outdoors, now I get to make a few casts. And I, I fish a little bit too. Uh, but I don't know if I answered your question. When you said you're talking about what does it look like with the young kids, I think it looks like just keeping it very simple, defining success as, when they tell their friends about it tomorrow, they're like, we did this. It was awesome. Even if that isn't entirely what you had envisioned, if there were fishing poles involved or whatever you're trying to get them to do, and they only did that 5% of the time, but that's how they consider it. Then I consider that to be positive because you just build off that. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. That's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I was, I was telling someone just recently, I have probably gone on, this summer alone, I can think of maybe 
nine to ten fishing trips. Yeah. And I have fished myself on maybe one of them for half the time. <laughs> and and like it's totally okay because I've shifted my mindset to to thinking about how I can share this with others. Now I to be honest, I would love to have a day just by myself even, you know, to go out. But um, I, I do think of it as an investment, you know, going forward. I, I hope we'll see my daughter uh, you know, she's three. She loves playing with leeches. And um, we do every night we do, a, you know, what was the best part of your day? Uh, conversation started. And she she's still struggling, struggling to figure out what the day is. Uh, mm. But we went you know, fishing on Tuesday. And her favorite part of the day yesterday, it's not Tuesday yesterday, uh, was that she got to catch a red horse sucker. I was like, all right. Okay, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're doing something. So we got a, we're talking about a three-year-old who can identify, identify a red horse sucker. Yeah. That's I'm impressed. I'm greatly impressed. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm envious of the day I get to where you're at, but all, all in due time. Well, as so, far as that goes, I think that really just comes from patience and just building slowly, but surely. Mm-hmm. I think I had a little bit of an advantage because like my parents were very, uh, growing up, I, I was often, uh, chafed a little bit because they were a little strict, especially when I was younger and they wouldn't let me do a lot of the things that other kids were doing. But mm-hmm. then as I got older, I started to be like, Oh, that's why now those mm-hmm. those kids are like struggling with these issues. And I'm not because I've learned a little bit of discipline. I've learned that you don't necessarily get to watch TV all day. You don't, you know, that doesn't help you to watch TV all day. Back then we didn't have the internet, but you could sit inside and watch TV all day. And then at the end of the afternoon, wonder why am I depressed and feeling grumpy? Oh, it's because you're, you've done nothing to benefit your physical or mental well-being in the day. Of course you feel like crud, you know, <laughs> these yeah, are fundamentals yeah. of life that are, that are sometimes easy to miss if somebody doesn't show them to you. Yeah. Well, now we got to do a podcast about the benefits of being outside. We'll have to schedule that one now. <laughs> oh, I'll do it with you because I, I struggle with my not struggle. I watch and see the success of my children and I can see how quickly when every parent knows that the ultimate ace in the hole, when you need a minute of them leaving you alone is to just put them on a screen. And some people, in my opinion, do that a little bit too much, but um, I keep it as ace in the hole when like long road trip or airplane ride or, other things where I'm like, fine, kids, unlimited screen time today. Uh, do what you need to do. Dad's got some other things that are otherwise need to be handled. And I, I see the result in one or two days of that. My children turn into much less appealing people. <laughs> and then also, more importantly, how quickly they turn back around into really, really fun to be around little little personalities as soon as they get the things that they should be getting, which is, you know, sunshine and exercise and, and intellectual stimulation, problem solving. Oh, can I tell you a cool, a sweet, cool story before we switch on? Yeah, do it. Just yesterday, uh, we had some work being done on the house and we needed to just vacate so they could do the work without us being underfoot. And so at like eight o'clock in the morning, we all piled in the car with the dog and I said, all right, I don't know what we're going to do. Let's just get out of here. Let's go get some breakfast. So we hit up 
a little place and had some breakfast. And then it was still only like nine o'clock and we had three more hours to kill. And I was like, well, let's just take the dog. He likes to swim. He's a lab. So let's take him to the lake. Let's let him swim. Usually if we get there before, um, earlier, then you don't disturb the other swimmers and the, the park people don't really care if your dog is off the leash, if you're not obnoxious about it. So we go there and we're doing that. And, um, there's a fish hook hanging out of a branch above just out of my kid's reach, you know, where somebody tried to cast and got their line stuck in the tree and they saw it and it had about four or five feet of line on it. And as they were trying to jump up and grab it, I was like, well, let's, let's first have a discussion about jumping up and grabbing a sharp hook attached to a tree. But after that I pulled down for him and I was like, you guys should go find a stick and use this and see if you can catch a fish. And they were like, what? I'm like, get a stick, tie it on there find some bait, see if you can catch a fish just as a challenge. And I gave him some pointers along the way, but to watch those little minds like clamp onto this challenge and not be willing to quit and then develop all this creative and problem solving stuff. I was, I had two thoughts. One, I'm really proud of these kids because they're doing really well and I'm really impressed. And also isn't this interesting how naturally they take to this? It takes almost no encouragement and they're off and running doing this little task that they don't even realize is like a whole set of life skills that they're working on. And then the other major, major theme of things I thought about was like my parents would have never even thought anything of that because that's just what kids naturally do. Our generation of raising kids, we have to think about it because our new version of raising kids is trying to like somehow protect them yet somehow put them in the mix with technology and screens and basically isolating ourselves from the natural world. So to me, it's like this amazing novelty. Look at that. My kids are doing it. And my parents would have never even batted an eye. They would have expected nothing else. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. But also, yeah, I mean, if you ever just take your kids out to the lake and you need them to just do something stimulating and not hassle you to go back inside so they can watch TV, hand them a hook and a string and say, go to work, see if you can do it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we had an experience similar to that with, um, uh, created a fishing gig, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for anyone who, who's not familiar, you take a, a sapling, so a small tree and you basically fork out four, points on one of the ends and then you separate them by shoving a stick uh, down you know the branch and you basically have a, a four-pointed spear and you can use that if you're really really skilled to catch fish or you know, where my family is originally from you'd use it to catch bullfrogs um, you know so you could eat them and man we gave those to our kids and the level of focus that they had for like an hour in the lake, just trying to catch little bluegills. Um, like it was really striking because the only other place we see that level of focus is, uh, when they're looking at a screen, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot uh, in that, in that same theme, Rob, it's like, I often get frustrated because all these things that my kids do and they have all these activities and literally and all, you know, the stuff that your average suburban kid has, they do. But the one thing that they will never shut up about and talk about the table is this thing they're building on Minecraft. And I'm just like, yeah. 
I'm glad that you guys are interested in this. And as far as video games goes, Minecraft is pretty creative. But it's still not even a real thing. <laughs> if you had just been outside doing this with sticks and rocks, I would be so interested to hear about it. But as, you know, and I'm interested to hear about anything my kids want to say to me uh, to some extent. But when they, they just go on nonstop about being able this thing they're doing on whatever video game they're working on, I'm, I'm often just like, gosh, I wish they could be this enthusiastic about actual life. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take up, I'm going to take your, uh, your spearing idea. That's a good one. Oh yeah. Let's, let's talk at some point about some lessons learned. There were, there were some big wins and fails on that one. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So let's talk about fire. Let's pivot a little bit. So, sure. you know, Josh, you're a firefighter. Uh, candidly, the, the idea for this episode came when Josh and I were hanging out and talking about camping and he started laying out some fire science for me that blew my mind. Um, and I've been building fires in the woods with, you know, kids for well over a decade at this point. And the stuff he was telling me totally changed how I do this. So, Josh, explain to us a little bit about fire. Like, what is it? What are the essential elements? Uh, wh- what do you need to make something combust? You know, all that sort of stuff. Right. And uh, I'll even... I'll add one other piece there that you just said, like um, so much of fire building. Uh, uh, let me say this. Let your kids play with fire. Now I'll qualify that statement. Right? Don't just turn them loose with a can of lighter fluid and a, and a, ma- a book of matches. What I mean is first children are very interested in fire. Uh, <laughs> They, they're super interested in it, and, and a lot of kids like myself and my son, they will find a way to, to play with it uh, some, eventually, and I don't want that to happen with no experience and no context. So my kids have pretty much always been allowed to explore it uh, under supervision. Uh, no accelerants. If you don't know what accelerant is, that's like flammable liquids. But just like, yeah, see if you want to build a fire, go ahead, go in the backyard. I'm, I'll be over here. Lots of little burnt fingers, you know, uh, and things like that. But that's part of the lesson. And um, as far as like how fire works, I think, uh, and I, that's how I was. Going, take a quick step back. I've just built a lot of fires in the backyard and under, without my parents' knowledge. I just had like one little, one little spot in the backyard where I knew they couldn't see me. And I was just over there making fires but mm-hmm. um and i would figure out like can i make it in a coffee can what if i poke a hole in the bottom of the coffee can can i make it in a hole you know all these different things and mm-hmm. um and i also did get into my dad's garage and pull out things like gasoline and lighter fluid and different things that was more dangerous so i don't want that my son doing that or my daughter but the basics of a fire they basically science calls it these days they call it the fire tetrahedron but it was always called the fire triangle, and that means there's three components that every fire must have. It needs fuel, obviously. It needs oxygen, or what most people just say it needs air. And it needs heat. So that heat one can be a little confusing, right? Because it basically what it means two things. One, it means you need the heat to start the fire. So a match, 
or a magnifying glass or, uh, you know, whatever else to get that fire started. But also there has to be enough heat in the fire to sustain that. What is It's basically a chemical reaction that's happening. And uh, you need those three things. What interrupts those things is can be surprising if you don't pay close attention. For example, my son and I were working on building a fire the other day, and we had it going. We just got the kin- past the kindling phase, and he's like, all right. And he slaps a, a bigger piece of wood on it, but he put it in the exact spot where it interrupted the flow of air coming through the fire. There's still air coming through the bottom, but there's not air escaping through the top and creating that, you know, what is a plume of heat and and smoke and allows as that heat and smoke shoots out the top, it draws more fresh air into the bottom. And so we had this pretty nice fire going. He pretty much put it out just by putting another piece of wood on it in the wrong way. Um, I think that that conversation that you and I had about that originally started because I was complaining about people in the campground that build poor fires and then they bank down smoke through the whole whole campground. Yep. And I think anybody who's ever been in a campground or been around a campfire has seen where it's like a cool morning or a cool evening or a, or a wet day or something where it's a cool day. And there is this, this giant uh, fog of smoke laying down across the campground from one person who has a crud fire. And mm-hmm. Uh, We also, in the fire service, when we train, uh, sometimes we can acquire, we call it acquired structure. Someone has a building that they're going to tear down anyways. They'll donate it to the fire service and we'll prepare it to make it a little bit safer. And we'll basically burn it down and create situations where we'll like start a, what we call a room and contents fire. So say like you had a fire in your house where it was just the couch that caught on fire. And it's still contained to that room. We call that a room and contents fire. So we'll create a lot of those scenarios where you maybe you arrive at the house, come in the front door. There's a fire on the second floor in the master bedroom. And we we have a real actual fire there and we go in and put it out. And we do that in a way where we don't burn the house down. We can start and put out the fire several times in that room. And then once we've burnt up that room, we can move to another room. And we keep doing that over and over again. And the reason I bring that up in this conversation is because even in the fire service, there's people that don't understand that heat component of the fire triangle. Remember I said you need the fuel, the oxygen, and you need the heat. There must be a lot of heat in a fire to make it pleasant to be around or to for it to really get going. Um, you've probably noticed when you're out camping and have a campfire going towards the end of the evening, you have a big bed of coals in the campfire and then you throw another log on and then that log just fires right off because there's so much heat in that bed of coals below it. It just takes off. If you don't have that bed of coals, you put another piece of wood on there, especially if it might be a little damp or something and it just starts smoking. And then everybody Mm -hmm. starts moving around the fire, trying to get the smoke out of their face. And they say like, how come every time I move over here, the smoke comes to me. (laughs) There's a physical reason for that too. But, um, you can avoid that, and that's like uh, actually they've gotten really common these uh, smokeless fire pits you can buy. I have one, uh, like this company Solo Stove makes one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know I think there's several of them. I happen to own the Solo Stove one because that's the one I got for Father's Day, but I think there's others out there. And they're um, 
made in such a way that they basically very efficiently funnel air or oxygen to the fire so you can't accidentally put it out like I just described or make an inefficient fire with it. Um, and if you have an efficient, clean burning fire, you get very little smoke and then it mm -hmm. puts off a lot of heat and it's pleasant to be around. So if I'm hearing you right, it's, it's low amounts of heat in your fire that cause lots of smoke. Is that right? Let's see. Is that a good way to put it? I think it kind of is. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and so a new fire obviously has very little heat in it because you got like a little piece of newspaper or dry grass for your, your tinder, right. Or whatever you're using for your tinder. And then you have some small, almost matchstick size or a little bit bigger pieces of very dry little kindling pieces. Right. Uh, my favorite is cedar, but, um, and that's an easy little fire to get going because you have those little sticks that want to come up and uh, burn easily. But what you must do at that point is like you're releasing energy from those little pieces of kindling and it's escaping heat into the air. You need to basically capture that energy and use it to start the next stage of the fire, which is we always just call it uh, medium wood. Or when I'm not being a patient father, I'm like, come on, get your medium wood on there. <laughs> and then I, then I take a breath and I'm like, oh no, this is supposed to be fun. Uh, you know, those pieces of wood that are about um, this, you know, the thickness of uh, one or two fingers and they're, you know, short. And you let that kindling wood, you had your tinder fire lit your kindling, your kindling's going to light your medium wood. And then you're going to want to get your bigger pieces right over that. All the while, all that heat that's coming off that fire, you're capturing it to progressively burn bigger and bigger pieces of fuel. Meanwhile, those medium pieces of wood are now breaking down and turning into your coals, your initial set of coals on the bottom. That's going to be that heat that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And then you get, so then, and, and again, it's a great way. These, these smokeless fire pits are also a great way to teach kids to start fire because they're so efficient. They, they're, they'll have a lot of success with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so it burns very well and very easily. And as long as you're not dealing with wet fuel or something, they burn really well. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're going to basically essentially trying to get that bed of coals. As a matter of fact, sometimes I will cheat and I have like in my camper, I have one of those, you know, those chimneys for starting briquettes for barbecuing. If, if, uh, if I don't have time or we can't find the kindling or whatever, or I'm about to do some cooking over the fire, I'll start up a chimney of briquettes. And once they get going, I'll dump them into my already going fire or I'll let them get going all the way, pour that into the fire pit and then just set medium wood on top of that. And I have an instant campfire. That's and again, smart. what I'm doing is I'm just creating that, that core of high heat in the middle of the fire that makes a high quality fire in, you know, in the long run. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I should also amend my statement when you said is heat, what causes poor fires also is airflow without any one of these three components of the fire triangle, you're going to have either a bad fire or a no fire. So again, I can't just discount your fuel. Your fuel can't be wet. It can't be poor quality. So assuming you have good fuel, let's just assume you do. Um, and you are, you're hoping to create that 
big bed of coals on the bottom that's going to give you that high quality fire. It must have the oxygen, like I mentioned, that can basically enter from the bottom and escape through the top and make like a, a plume. You can see it when there's smoke because the smoke is visible, but when the fire's really burning the way it's supposed to, there's almost no smoke. And you can't really see it except maybe at night you might see the embers that blow off of it and then kind of twirl up into the sky and on a good sized good campfire you might see those go up 20 or 30 feet into the air and that's that's physics at work you know the the heat is there's so much heat it's drawing in a ton of oxygen from the bottom which you could see my hand motions i'm doing to help <laughs> reiterate <laughs> my story ton of heat ton of oxygen getting sucked in from the bottom being used to create that chemical reaction and releasing carbon dioxide and fuel and uh, heat and hopefully uh, just you're not going to be 100 uh, percent efficient but high efficiency less smoke because basically smoke you must understand smoke is unburnt fuel mm. Sm smoke is fuel and that's a big piece of uh, that we teach in the fire service when you're in a fire and you see you're in a burning building and you see heavy smoke rolling above you that's basically explosive gas that just needs to reach the right temperature before it ignites. Um, when you, when you're burning something like a piece of wood, you're not even actually burning the wood itself. You're heating the wood to such a state that the outer layers of it vaporize and those vapors leave the, leave the wood and then catch on fire. If you ever notice, like look at a piece of wood that's on fire, you look really closely. Sometimes it looks like the fire's hovering right above the, the wood you ever seen that before mm -hmm. yeah that's that's because there's that little area between the wood and the fire where there's enough fuel but not enough oxygen so it just looks like the fire's hovering above the wood you don't always see it but under certain conditions you can see that mm -hmm. so that's pushing off and then sometimes some of it escapes because of your poor fire building skills oftentimes and then it's heavy smoke so the more smoke you have coming off, that's why when you have a fire on or when you are um, turn on your stove, you have a gas stove, you don't see a bunch of smoke coming off of it because uh, natural gas burns very efficiently and the stoves are set up to do that just right. That's so interesting. I, I had no idea. Um, you probably knew this, a lot of this intuitively, if you think about it, but it's kind of interesting if you have that kind of mind to also apply the science to it now and be like, Oh, okay. That's why that works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you spend enough time around fire, you see all the things you're saying, but um, yeah. to know how it works is really helpful. Well, what might be helpful right now, Rob, if you don't mind, uh, like I just said a bunch of, of stuff that, and cause I can be a little nerdy about this. It might sound a little heavy, but like in a more practical way, I'll just, how about I tell you my preferred way that I build a fire? That sounds great. Okay. So I do it this way almost every time. I'll take my stack of firewood and I have preferably if I can some small sticks. Like I like to take little pieces of cedar if I have them, but you know, some sort of small piece of wood that are about the, a little bit longer, but maybe the thickness of your middle finger. I'm sorry, your pinky finger. And um, any, anywhere around there is fine, especially if it's nice and dry. And uh, another cool little cheat tip that I do uh, when I'm in the outdoors, I'll have like a small container, like a, what's those little metal container that has those super strong mints in them? 
Um, oh, the Altoids? Altoid container type thing that I keep in my pocket, and it's full of cotton balls that have been saturated with Vaseline. And the cool thing about that is anytime you need a little Vaseline, like if you got chapped lips or you got a, like a cut or something on your hand that you want to, you have Vaseline with you. But one of those little fire, uh, one of those little cotton balls, if you just take a match to it, it'll light immediately and it'll burn good and hot for a couple minutes. So um, a lot of times I'll use one of those, but you needn't even do that. Just a, a piece of paper crumpled up underneath um, the, the kindling, but I'll take the, a big piece of wood and maybe two, and I'll lay them parallel to each other with a space in between. So two pieces of the big firewood, one parallel like railroad tracks with, uh, you know, six or so inches in between the two down in that void between the two pieces of wood is where I'll put my piece of cotton or whatever I'm starting the fire with. And I'll just do a little teepee of the, the kindling wood, the little pieces of cedar or small sticks from maybe the bottom of an evergreen tree where all the dead wood is always hanging on the bottom of the tree or whatever I have found. And that'll be my initial little teepee style fire. Does that make sense when I say teepee? Mm -hmm. And then that'll be the initial fire. So as that fire starts to go, I mentioned we want to now capture that energy that we just created in our medium wood. And those two logs that I talked about in the beginning that are on either side are a super convenient place to just start laying the medium wood over the fire, kind of like the like a, like a railroad track, you know. So mm -hmm. uh, somebody once described that to me like, oh, I see you're using a combination of the teepee and the Lincoln log method. And I'm like, wow, I guess I am, right? Because some people call that the log cabin or the Lincoln log method when you stack mm -hmm. your wood like you're building a log cabin. And then obviously the other one is the teepee. So some hybrid of the two. But the main point being that I've put the two larger pieces of wood on either side. It does two things. Oxygen can rush in from the other sides, the open ends. And it, the, the oxygen is directed exactly where I want it. It can't, you know, swirl around or go elsewhere. It, as the fire grows, it pulls oxygen in from the sides. And then all the energy that I'm creating is blocked by these large pieces of wood and forced up where my medium wood is waiting to capture that energy and start the fire. As those medium pieces of wood start to break down, they automatically fall into the, the area where I started the fire between the large logs. <clears throat> and I can just keep adding more. If I feel like I don't have enough of a base, I add more medium wood. As soon as that medium wood starts going, I'll add one or two to three pieces of my big wood, which is what I always kind of just call it, your main pieces of firewood. Again, I don't need them to exactly catch on fire right now, but I want them to start, you know, I want to capture the energy that I'm creating every time I step up the fire to the next level. And then mm -hmm. the next thing to think about, especially if you have wood that's, it's been snowing or wood that's wet or not great wood that you pulled out of, you know, some deadfall behind the, behind the campsite or whatever is, um, and this is another concept that comes on the firefighting on the wildland firefighting side. It's called preheated fuels. Your fuel must reach a certain temperature before it can burn. So if you have, for example, a bunch of firewood that was outside and it's January in Minnesota and that wood is, is three degrees and you throw it on a hot fire, you're basically cooling off the fire, taking out that uh, ever so important heat that we were just talking about and causing that fire to use its heat energy to heat that piece of wood up before it can even start burning it. 
So what you can do, you have wood like that, that's wet or uh, cold, you're already setting it next to the fire to start warming up before you use it. So like in a fire ring at a campground, I'll oftentimes have it standing on end inside the fire ring around the edge. And sometimes it'll start on its own and then you just kick it in. But a lot of times that's just enough to get it dried out and ready to use in 15 or 20 minutes, you know. Mm -hmm. It's similar to like fires that uh, wildland fires that start on a hill. They start at the base of a hill and they take off and they climb the hill so fast. It's because they're preheating the fuel ahead of them as they go. Oh, interesting. Interesting. See, that's why I had you on the podcast, man. That's so, so interesting. Um, so, you know, we've, we've only got a, a few minutes left here, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that I have in, in getting families to engage with some outdoor skills is a fear of fire, right? Or a fear of their kids getting hurt or, you know, not knowing what to do in a bad situation. Um, and, you know, admittedly when, when I do this stuff, you know, I, I have a set of rules because I've had some bad experiences with kids. Like when a kid throws a river rock into a fire, you know, mm-hmm. the gas inside the rock explodes or expands, the rock explodes, and then you've got hot pieces of rock all over the kids that usually in my case, I'm responsible for, even though they're not my kids. So like, you know, don't throw wet rocks and batteries into a fire. Josh, what are your essential rules for fire safety when you're working with kids? Well, uh, I mean, if you got little girls with long hair, this is one that we learned the hard way. Uh, you know, she, my daughter's leaning over doing the things that I taught her. And all of a sudden she's got singed hair. Luckily it didn't get, you know, fully involved hair, but, uh, she singed her hair. So we're, we're, we're big on having your clothing and your hair tied back. If you, if you have long hair or any type of like clothing that could catch on fire, you know, Again, fire requires uh, those three essential elements to, to really take off and do anything too dangerous. It needs to be respected, but it needs to be understood. And that's uh, maybe for a future podcast. But, man, if you can just understand the things around you, then you don't have to follow a set of rules. You understand what's happening, and you can make your decisions based on what you know is going to happen based on, on, on knowledge, not, um, not just, just simple mm-hmm. a, a plus B, you know? So, um, I often say to the younger guys at work, I'm like, look, I'll show you a few things about how to do whatever we're training on, but just like a chocolate chip cookie recipe, do you like your chocolate chip cookies flat and crispy, Rob? Do you like them thick, like a cake? Do you like crispy edges? Do you like you know, there's all these different types of chocolate chip cookies, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I promise you I'm going to bring this back around to fire starting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that the, the, the ingredients to a chocolate chip cookies are almost every recipe is pretty much the same ingredients. It's what those ingredients do and, and in what quantities and how they do it. That's what makes a cookie different. If you understand that, you can take any recipe, make some adjustments, and make the cookie the way you like it. And if you understand why fire does what it does, what will make it do it better, what will make it worse, then you can 
you don't need a lot of rules because you'll understand what's happening. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's the ultimate answer because, but you can't expect a six year old to know that. Right. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, I guess, certainly no accelerants. It's very tempting, especially in a campground, you look over, you see that Coleman camp fuel right next to the lantern. And you're like, I'm going to throw some of this on here. Uh, that'll get this fire going. First of all, it rarely does because if you have a problem with getting your fire started, it's usually more than just, um, throw some fuel on it. I mean, sometimes that'll, that'll work, but most of the time it'll flare up real big and then it'll go back down to whatever your initial problem was like wet fuel or a poorly constructed fire. Also, it's exceedingly dangerous. Um, we've all seen the videos of people blowing themselves up, throwing gas on a fire. Um, mm -hmm. you, you just, you don't want to set that example for kids by doing it because they'll think that it's okay. And as an adult, you might realize some safety measures that you're kind of uh, intuitively taking, like staying way back and throwing it that they don't understand. It's just too dangerous. You could set that, that gas can down next to the fire and forget about it. It'll warm up and then cause an explosion, a fiery explosion that throws fuel all over everything and everyone. It's just, it's a big no, no. You just, if you need that to start mm -hmm. a fire, then you you're doing something wrong uh, with a few exceptions. Like sometimes when, if you're like a, live on a rural property and you're doing these very big burn piles, you might need a little help like that. But even that, people misuse, like instead of using a uh, bunch of diesel fuel to light up a, 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 a burn pile on your farm, you can use a little bit of diesel fuel and your leaf blower and you can get that thing ripping. And let me tell mm -hmm. you, it's fun to put a leaf blower on a fire if you can do it safely. It's amazing. <laughs> Heat, fuel, and oxygen, right? Yeah, you, you're putting extra air in there and you can really get a fire going. If you, you We've all stood around a campfire with a piece of newspaper or cardboard fanning it, right? Trying to mm -hmm. get the, trying to get it to flare up. That works really well too. And so mm -hmm. we're talking about oxygen. We're not talking about, we already have fuel. We don't need to add more fuel with an accelerant. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good point about the putting wet rocks in the fire. That's an important one. And then um, another one that I get on my kids a lot about is people sit around a fire ring, right? So you have a ring of fire. You have a bunch of folks sitting around in their chairs talking and roasting marshmallows. And then you have little kids with no experience and poor judgment involved in the situation. And they're horsing around. They jump up and they try to run between, you know, my chair and where I'm sitting and the fire. There's not enough room there. And if you stumble, you're going to fall in the fire. And you're probably not going to, like, fall in, catch on fire and die. But you're going to fall in. You're going to burn yourself very badly. And it's just, it's an unnecessary risk when you are around a fire, there's no horseplay. And if you need to move to a different portion of the fire, you get up, you walk around the back of everybody and then re-enter the ring. That's a hard one to, I, I mean, my, I still have to tell my kids that one. They also yeah. like to, you know, kids love to stick a stick in the fire till it starts burning and then let it pull it out. And then it has smoke coming off the tip and then they swing the stick around. Mm -hmm. I don't like it when they do that and then swing that hot pointy stick in each other's faces. <laughs> so that's kind of a, it's kind of a rule too. So last thing then, how do we, uh, how do we avoid burning the forest or our yards? Um, well, 
an understanding, again, we come back to the fire triangle, right? You need to have these, these things. You, you obviously mostly have the oxygen because we live on earth and we have a 21% oxygen atmosphere. Um, the fuel situation varies. <clears throat> if you were to build a campfire in the middle of your, um, your front lawn, if you have a green normal suburban front lawn, um, there's, there's no chance it's going anywhere. If that's a green lawn, you can start the fire right in the middle. You're going to ruin your lawn, but green, um, living plant matter, generally speaking with some exceptions just does not burn well. Um, even like, you know, you take an evergreen branch off your Christmas tree and throw it on the fire. Yes, it flares up really high, but it doesn't really put out a ton of heat. And I wouldn't build a fire right next to the, to the spruce trees in my backyard. But even if one of them did catch on fire, I wouldn't uh, usually worry about it taking off and burning down the whole neighborhood. Um, so as long as you have, especially here in Minnesota, um, where we have a more humid environment, and you don't have high winds, and you should probably be looking on the website for the, uh, uh, you can just put in local fire fire safety conditions in your website and you'll find out what the um, state state forest, uh, forget what the agency is that currently does it. But you know, you'll hear about red flag conditions or fire, fire danger for the time, uh, for your, for the week or the day that you're in. Most conditions, except for in, in Minnesota, basically in the fall and sometimes in the early spring, we worry about it because we have windy conditions and a lot of dead material around after winter or late fall. Some of the leaves are starting to fall and we have windy, dry conditions. Other than that, if you have a fire and you keep, uh, you know, a good six to 10 feet around it clear of any burning material or uh, sorry, flammable material, you know, like dry leaves, um, I always have either a charged hose line. So that's a fire service term, but you know, your hose, your garden hose ready to go. And with a spray nozzle on it, and there's already water in the hose, we call that a charged hose line. So that if you need it, you pick it up, you squeeze the trigger and you, you got water or a fire extinguisher. I always have that handy. Um, when we're camping, I mean, I, if you're backpacking, obviously you're not carrying a fire extinguisher, but uh, we mostly camp at campgrounds. Um, there's always a fire extinguisher handy. At home, I have the fire extinguisher and the hose that are at least ready. And um, it's just, if if you, in any emergency that happens to you, if it's something that you've considered ahead of time, you're like, okay, hey, if, in case this happens, I'm going to do this. It takes 30 to 60 seconds out of your time, and you can do it while you're doing something else. You can just be like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a fire right here. Something goes wrong. I got my hose right there. And if that doesn't work, I got my fire extinguisher. That's mm -hmm. all. How long did that take me to say? <laughs> it makes sense. I, I deal with, a, with emergencies for my living. And I can tell you, it makes a huge difference when something crazy happens and you've already considered what you might do if that happens. It makes all the difference in the world. Mm. What kills you is when something happens that you never even thought could possibly happen. Oh, my God, what do I do? Now you have to go through a whole process while you're panicking of how you're going to going to going to overcome this problem and it's just a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. So try to think about what could go wrong ahead of time and think about what you might do. Also, I forgot to mention plan the third part of that plan is charge hose line, fire extinguisher and 
while I'm handling that, my wife calls 911. Mm. That's what, and I know that in my mind and I don't say it to her because she will be like, what, you're going to have to call 911. I'm like, no, honey, I'm just planning ahead. And I know that if if I were to ever walk outside and see a whole, somehow the deck caught on fire or whatever, first thing I would do is grab the hose line, start putting out, and I'd say, Meg, go call 911. And so I've already thought about all that. All I got to do is execute if it happens, which it won't, mm -hmm. right? Right. Because I'm smart with how I do my stuff. Mm -hmm. Josh, this has been fantastic. And I'm really excited for the next one we do together. Um, now, I, I had asked Josh, is there any way that people can find you? And Josh was uh, very clear that he does not have social media and is very private. And uh, But that makes it all the more special that he was able to join me today and share his experiences. And so, Josh, thank you so much. And, uh, I look forward to the next time we get to you. Well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>